The air raid siren that Red October plant worker Pyotr Novotsia reacted to was just another in the series of false alarms that Stalingrad residents had endured during the day. By late afternoon, the center of the city had lapsed into apathy. Incredibly enough, despite the presence of General Yeremenko's nerve center in the Tsaritsa Gorge and the unusual military traffic on roads leading north to the factory area, most people in the downtown part of the city remained completely ignorant of the crisis. As if to underscore that it was not just another drill, anti-aircraft guns around Red Square banged loudly in frenzied cadence. Small black puffs marched across the clear blue sky. Automobiles quickly screeched to a halt. Tram cars let off passengers who stood mute for a moment, shaded their eyes, and looked into the sun to gauge the danger point. Then they saw them, the lead groups of more than 600 German planes coming from beyond the dawn. Like strings of gulls flying in perfect Vs, the Stukas and Ju-88s droned over the sun-drenched city and tipped over into their dives. Their bombs fell into the crowded downtown residential area and, because of the long drought, flames spread like wildfire. In seconds, Stalingrad was ablaze. End quote. This description, from William Craig's excellent book Enemy at the Gates, described the beginning of a turning point in the war in the East, the Battle of Stalingrad. Welcome to episode 31 in season two of Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, coming to you today from the Redbeard Studio on traditional Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, also called Ottawa, Canada. Last episode described Fall Blau, in English Operation Blue, the German summer 1942 campaign. While the Soviet high command, that is, Stalin and his closest associates, believed the Germans' goal was again Moscow and prepared and planned for that eventuality, Hitler had aimed his Wehrmacht at the Kuban steppe and the oil fields of Markov, Krosny, and Baku. Part of that strategy was to send the 6th Army, at this point the largest and strongest in Army Group South, toward Stalingrad, the industrial city at the great bend of the Volga River, where it comes close to the Don River. The idea, initially, was to protect the flanks for that main attack to the south and the oil. But before I get into that, it's time for our regular feature, What Else is Going On in the War? August 1942. As mentioned before, summer 1942 was pretty much the Axis's high point. If an alien were to do a quick sweep over the planet then, they would have concluded that the Axis was winning. For example, Hitler, 
his allies, clients, and puppets, controlled Europe from the Atlantic to the Volga River, from the Barents Sea to the Mediterranean. In Africa, Rommel was hammering the British and getting closer to Egypt and the Suez Canal. The Allies were worried that Hitler's forces in the Eastern Front could penetrate the Caucasus Mountains and link up with Rommel's Africa Corps as they drove through Egypt, over the Sinai Isthmus, and into the Middle East. In the Atlantic, German U-boats were sinking millions of tons of UK, US, and Canadian shipping, along with thousands of sailors and all the vital supplies they carried. In the Pacific, the Japanese were sinking American and Australian warships. Now, they were defeated in the Battle of Midway, but still, in the Battle of the Coral Sea and in the Solomon Islands, they were on the ascendance. They had captured by this point the Philippines, the Dutch East Indies, now called Indonesia, and Burma. Their navy was attacking British shipping in the Indian Ocean, and their planes were bombing U.S. installations in the Aleutian Islands far to the north. So, you have to understand how, at this point, some in the Western democracies might feel a little discouraged, even a little desperate. In the last episode, I told you about Operation Blue, the Germans' offensive strategy for the summer of 1942. While the Soviet high command, Stavka, believed the Germans' goal would again be Moscow, as it had been in the previous summer, the goal was actually the oil fields of the Kuban steppe and the cities of Maikop, Grozny, and Baku on the Caspian Sea. This meant capturing the whole of the Caucasian Isthmus between the Black and Caspian Seas, a crazily ambitious goal. It would require their forces to cover more ground than they had attempted in 1941 with their drive on Moscow. But at this point, the Germans desperately needed the oil and other resources of the Caucasus. So to accomplish this goal, the Germans divided Army Group South into groups A and B. Group A, under General Feldmarschall Wilhelm List, consisted of the 1st Panzer Army, the 11th Army, 17th Army, and the Romanian 3rd Army. This was the group ordered South to conquer the oil fields. Group B was commanded by General Feldmarschall Maximilian von Weeks, comprised the 2nd Army, the 6th Army, the 4th Panzer Army, the 29th Army Corps, as well as the Hungarian 2nd Army and Italian 8th Army. The first step of Fall Blau Operation Blue was to capture the city of Voronezh between the mighty Don and Volga rivers, and then send Group A south for the oil and Group B farther east to secure the northern flank of that advance. According to Nazi mythology, the Volga River was the border between Europe and Asia, which meant they had no interest in going farther than the Volga, no desire to go deeper into the seemingly endless steppe. Likewise, they had no desire, at least at this point, at least initially, they did not have a desire to capture the city at the last great bend of the Volga, Stalingrad. As mentioned last episode, General von Kleist, commander of the 1st Panzer Army in Group A, said, quote, The capture of Stalingrad was subsidiary to the main aim. It was only of importance as a convenient place in the bottleneck between the Don and the Volga, 
where we could block an attack on our flank by Russian forces coming from the east. At the start, Stalingrad was no more than a name on a map to us. But Stalingrad was important for the USSR, not just because of its name. It lay along the supply line for the Lend-Lease program, where supplies of weapons, ammunition, food, trucks, and all other kinds of things that a war demands would go, coming from Iran, over the Caspian Sea, and up the Volga River toward Moscow and the front lines. Take a look at the map, Map 1, on the webpage to see the Volga's route and it's how important it was to the USSR's effort. Now, the first phase of Fall Blau Operation Blue was to capture Voronezh, as I said. The 4th Panzer Army reached the city on the eastern side of the Don River on the 5th of July. Stalin still believed that Germans would then try to encircle Moscow from here, so they would get to Voronezh and then swing north. So Stavka ordered a lot of uh, forces to defend the city and prevent the Germans from going any further. The Germans managed to capture the southern or right bank of the Don across from the main part of Voronezh, and at this point, that was enough for their plans. So at this point, when the Germans didn't continue north from Voronezh, it dawned on the Soviet high command that maybe Stalingrad was at risk. So they created a new Stalingrad front out of the mauled southwestern front and added two new armies, as well as the Volga Naval Flotilla. Then the Germans split Army Group South into A and B. Army Group A moved south, while the 6th Army of Army Group B began going east, or they were supposed to but they were delayed by fuel shortages. Do you see now why the Germans needed that sweet, sweet Caucasian crude? Despite these shortages, the 6th Army, now under recently appointed General Friedrich Paulus, began moving towards Stalingrad. Now at this point, its objective is only to bombard the city, to prevent its use as a way station on the Volga River transport route and choke off this vital supply line. But then Hitler started meddling with the plans, making changes as they were being carried out. At the end of July, he ordered Paulus's 6th Army to capture Stalingrad. The 4th Romanian Army would guard their left flank along the Don River. Hitler also decided that finishing the capture of Voronezh would only require one corps, not a full army. He ordered the 4th Panzer Army, which had been previously part of Army Group B, to go south to join Army Group A on its advance on the Coupon Steppe. Now, I remember reading a military maxim long ago, quote, order, counter-order, disorder, end quote. The result of Hitler's changes in the plan were predictable. According to William Craig in Enemy at the Gates, and on the steppe roads of Russia, the 6th Army stopped dead while swarms of vehicles and men from the 4th Panzer Army cut left to right across its line of advance. Enormous traffic jams developed. Tanks of one army mingled with those of the other, 
supply trucks got lost in a maze of contradictory signposts and directions handed out by irate military policemen. Worse, the 4th Panzer Army took the bulk of the oil and gasoline meant to fuel both armies. End quote. A few days later, Hitler then changed his mind again and ordered Hoth and his panzers to turn again and head east to support the 6th Army's assault on Stalingrad. Order, counter-order, counter-counter-order, disorder squared. Every problem in the world goes back to bad management. Still, at first, Hitler's chaotic orders and changes seemed to work. By 5th August, the 4th Panzer Army captured the town of Kotelnikovo, a rail center 73 miles, or 117 kilometers, southwest of Stalingrad. So that is actually very good progress. Now, on their side, the Soviets kept bringing in more defenses into the area. By 22nd July, the Stalingrad front comprised 38 divisions. 16 of them were tasked to stop the 6th Army, which at this point comprised 18 divisions, with 20% more troops than their opponents, twice as many tanks, and nearly four times as many airplanes. Stalin also ordered the army and civilian population to hold Stalingrad. That's right, no evacuation of civilians. Seven armies set up three defensive lines, the 10th NKVD Rifle Division, the NKVD being the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, basically Stalin's ideological enforcers. They came to the city, quote, to control the Volga crossing points and bring discipline to a city increasingly seized by panic, end quote. The German 6th Army reached the great westward bend of the Don River by the 24th of July. There, they had to pause or consolidate far west of the river because they had run out of fuel and were getting low on ammunition. The Luftwaffe dominated the air, though, preventing the Red Army from damaging the 6th Army significantly. It took until August for enough fuel to reach the 6th Army, which would allow it to advance on its assigned task. So, at dawn on the 7th of August, the 14th and 16th Panzer Corps, both of the 6th Army, hit the Soviet lines west of Kalach, a city on the Don River. In four days, they surrounded eight rifle divisions, destroying 1,000 Soviet tanks, 750 guns, and taking 50,000 prisoners by the 11th of August. This was a great time to be in the Axis. On the 11th of August, the British carrier HMS Eagle was sunk in the Mediterranean near Malta. On the 17th, a U.S. Marine raid on Mekin Atoll on the Japanese positions failed. On August 19th, Canadian troops, along with some American Rangers and some British commandos, attempted a raid on the German-occupied French coast at Dieppe. It was a disaster for the Allies. And on 24th August, two American cruisers and one Australian cruiser were sunk against one Japanese cruiser in the Battle of the Eastern Solomon Islands. So, back to the Eastern Front. On 21st August, infantry of the 6th German Army crossed the River Don 
in boats. On the far side, they built pontoon bridges. The next day, the 16th Panzer Division, under General Leutnant Hans Huber, crossed the Don River. The way to Stalingrad lay open, the way being a flat step, baked hard by the heat. Perfect for Panzers. Now, on the other side, temperatures were climbing over 40 degrees Celsius, or 100 degrees Fahrenheit. One source reported 53 Celsius. That's 127 degrees Fahrenheit. But still, their goal, the city of Stalingrad, was only 77 kilometers, less than 50 miles away. Early in the morning of 23rd August, so this is one day after crossing the Don River, Hans Huba and his panzers were only 65 kilometers, or 40 miles from Stalingrad. There, he halted when he received a radio message. I'll quote from Antony Beaver again. They waited with their engines switched off. Then a Fieseler Storch, a German plane, appeared, circled, and landed beside Huba's command vehicle. General Wolfram Friedrich von Richthofen, the brutal and shaven-headed commander of the 4th Luftflotte, strode over. He told Huba that on orders from Führer headquarters, the whole of his air fleet was to attack Stalingrad. Make use of us today, he told Huba. You'll be supported by 1,200 aircraft. Tomorrow, I cannot promise you any more. A few hours later, German tank crews waved enthusiastically as they saw the massed squadrons of Heinkel 111s, Junkers 88s, and Stukas flying over the heads towards Stalingrad. End quote. So, what was Stalingrad anyway? What was this great city at the bend of the Volga? I'm going to describe that, but first, I have to take a short break. This episode is brought to you by the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian, Maurice Burry, drafted into the Soviet Red Army in 1941, just in time to be thrown between the jaws of the USSR and Nazi Germany at the launch of the greatest land invasion in history, the monstrous war called Operation Barbarossa. In three volumes, Army of Worn Souls, Under the Nazi Heel, and Walking Out of War, the Eastern Front Trilogy is the story of the largest and deadliest side of the Second World War, seen through the eyes of a man who was there from the earliest days in 1941, through Germany's grinding occupation of Ukraine, and finally to the savage end of the war in Berlin. You can find the three individual volumes as ebooks exclusively on Amazon, or purchase a three-volume complete paperback on any online book retailer or at your local bookstore. To learn more about the Eastern Front Trilogy, visit scottburyauthor.com. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel.
and all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. Thanks for coming back to Beyond Barbarossa and this episode on the beginning of the Battle of Stalingrad. Stalingrad was an unusual city. Founded in 1589 as Tsaritsyn, it was a fortress to defend the Russian Empire's eastern frontier against the Tatars and Turks. During the Russian Civil War in 1920-21, Stalin led the Red Army there against the Whites. This, according to official Russian lore, prompted the people of the city to change its name in his honor. What makes the city so unusual is its layout. Even to this day, it's now called Volgograd, if you're trying to find it on Google Maps. It's mostly strung in a long strip along the western or right bank of the Volga River, mostly above the Great Bend. In 1942, Stalingrad stretched 16 miles or 24 kilometers along the river, from the grain silos in the south up to the great tractor factory at its northern extremity. In the 1920s and 30s, Stalingrad was a model of Soviet industrial idealism. It had broad avenues, white apartment buildings, an airport, and expansive public parks. It was surrounded by huge fruit orchards. There was a big famous department store and a concert hall. Half a million people called it home. Stalingrad was also a major industrial center. The northern half of the city was the factory area, with extensive housing for workers. The famous Drzinski tractor factory, with its iconic smokestacks on the banks of the Volga, had been retooled to produce military equipment and weapons for the Red Army, including the T-34 tank. South of the tractor factory lay the Barricadi gun factory, named for the red barricades of the Russian Revolution. South of that was a Hrazny October plant, or Red October, which produced steel for the tractor factory. Continuing south, we get to the Lazar chemical plant, and linking all these huge factory complexes was an extensive rail system. Now, more or less in the middle of the city is the Mamayev Kurgan, a huge Tatar burial mound that, by the Soviet era, was a picnic area that gave a spectacular view of the whole city. Now, if you were to climb to the top of the Mamayev Kurgan and look east, you would see the steppe, or prairie, stretching endlessly to the eastern horizon. And in 1942, a bit closer, you would see a lot of boats and ferries on the waters of the Volga. Lots and lots of boats and ferries crisscrossing the Volga River. Because in 1942, there was no permanent bridge across the mighty river at Stalingrad. Let's put a pin in that idea for now. Coming down the Mamiyev Kurgan on the south side, we encounter the Krutoy Gully, a deep ravine in the steppe 
crossing. That brings us to the center of the city, the residential and commercial core. In the middle was the railroad station number one, with connections to east and west, Leningrad, Moscow, Kiev, and more. As the German armies approached, Soviets worked feverishly to bring in the grain harvest, as well as other foods, and send them over the Volga across those ferries. So by the end of July 1942, 27,000 freight cars, 9,000 tractors and other farm vehicles, as well as 2 million head of cattle had been shipped out of range of German guns and airplanes. In front of the train station was one of the most iconic sites in the city, the Children's Korovod, a large statue of six children dancing a round dance around a crocodile. Think of that one, to remember that one too. This central area also held the offices of the newspaper Stalingrad Pravda, or Truth, as well as the gigantic department store Universmag, which in the summer of 1942 sold only essentials. There was the Gorky Theater with its Philharmonic Orchestra still playing regular concerts in the summer. There were open-air markets for fresh produce, at one end, we have the 9th of January Square, at the other, Red Square. And, of course, there were the city administrative buildings. Now, we get past the um, uh, center of the city. We come to the Saritsa Gorge, a steep 200-foot deep dry riverbed that went east-west from the Volga River. Cut into the side of the gorge, 500 meters up from the riverbank, was a bunker. In summer 1942, it was the command post of General Andrei Yeramenko, commander of the Southeastern Front. We go south of that, and it's another residential area, anchored by an immense grain elevator on the shore of the Volga, just north of its great bend to the southeast. I put a map of the city in 1942 on the webpage for this episode. Now, I know I've mentioned a lot of different places, and they're all going to be important in the coming battle. And you history buffs know just how important the coming battle will be. One more thing about the layout of the city. The Saritsa Gorge was not only a division of the city and the redoubt of the southeastern front's commander, it was also the boundary between the Ottomanko's southeastern front and the Stalingrad front. At this time, that was commanded by General Vasily Gordov. According to William Craig in Enemy at the Gates, Gordov was a stereotypical Red Army bully. Quote, Under pressure, Gordov became a tyrant, humiliating his staff, inciting open revolt among subordinates. Now faced with Yeramenko, a rival for power, he was evasive, uncooperative, and unpleasant. End quote. Also, Yeramenko thought that dividing the command between two army fronts in the middle of a city was insane. But he had to comply with Stavka, as did Gortov. The city at this point had prepared defenses. Four rings of anti-tank ditches, 20 to 30 miles west of the city, with defenders dug in behind those. But Yaramenko, in fact all the commanders knew, they would not be able to hold the panzers back for long. Now, if you remember when I was describing the city of Stalingrad on the eve of the battle, that there were no permanent bridges across the Volga River in 1942. There are now, but in the summer of 1942, the only way to cross the Volga was by boat or ferry. 
The Germans had crossed the land bridge between the Don and Volga rivers in just one day. Around noon on 23rd August 1942, as General Yaromenko was bustling in his bunker making phone calls, trying to hold the Germans back as they were racing across the steppe, two officers came in proudly announcing that they had just finished building a new pontoon bridge across the river to the eastern shore. Yaromenko thanked them for their hard work and then told them to destroy it. The two officers looked at each other, astonished, unable to believe this. Yaromenko then said, Yes, yes, I said to destroy it, and quickly. Again, to quote Antony Beaver, That Sunday, 23rd August 1942, was a day Stalingraders would never forget. Unaware of the proximity of German forces, civilians were picnicking in the sun on the Mame of Kurgan, the great Tatar burial mound which dominated the center of the city, which stretched for th over 30 kilometers along the curve of the Volga's west bank. Loudspeakers in the streets broadcast air raid warnings, but only when anti-aircraft batteries began firing did people begin to run for cover. Richthofen's aircraft started to carpet bomb the city in relays. In the later afternoon, he wrote in his diary, began my two-day major assault on Stalingrad with good incendiary effects right from the start. Petroleum storage tanks were hit, creating fireballs and then huge columns of black smoke, which became visible from more than 150 kilometers away. A thousand tons of bombs and incendiaries turned the city into an inferno. The tall apartment buildings, the pride of the city, were smashed and gutted. With refugees swelling the population to around 600,000, some 40,000 are estimated to have been killed in the first two days by air attack. End quote. Amazingly, the children's korovod, the statue of six children dancing around a crocodile, survived. And it would survive the entire battle, in fact, the war. That same day, the 14th Panzer Corps reached the Volga, north of Stalingrad, splitting the Stalingrad front. The now isolated 62nd Army was transferred to the Americans' command in the southeastern front. The next day, the Panzers tried to move toward the tractor factory at the north end of the city, but were repelled. In the south, the Germans pushed through the concentric defensive rings. Understandably, panic ensued in the city, but Stalin had ordered Nishagunazad, not one step back. Punishable by death. Yeremenko and the political commissar there, uh, one um, Nikita Khrushchev, moved their headquarters across the river to the slightly safer east side. To better direct the battle, they said. Left in the Tsaritsa HQ was a man who would become iconic as a defender of the city, Vesely Chukov, commander of the 62nd Army. Khrushchev asked him, Comrade Chukov, how do you interpret your task? Chukov replied, we will defend the city or die in the attempt. He knew his troops were being used as bait, says historian Antony Tucker Jones. He knew the Stavka was planning a counteroffensive at some point. His job then was to pin down the German 6th Army, hold them as the target for that coming counterattack. Until the counteroffensive came, it was his task to grind the Germans down. Time is blood, he said.
But in August, the 62nd Army was down to 20,000 men, and they had fewer than 60 tanks. Many of these were immobile, useful only as stationary heavy guns. Chukov ordered the NKVD to place snipers at every crossing point across the Volga River to shoot deserters. He also positioned his heavy and medium artillery on the east bank of the river, farther away from German fire, but still able to hit them. After the war, Chukov said, quote, The Germans made their gains not because we retreated, but because our men were killed faster than they could be replaced. The Germans advanced only over our dead, but we prevented them from breaking through to the Volga. End quote. He was right. Through the battle, the Germans only managed to hold about four miles or six kilometers of the bank north of the Barakati factory. The rest of the river remained in Red Army hands. Speaking of hands, the stress on Strukov defending in the greatest siege in history resulted in eczema so bad he had to bandage his hands. But the 62nd Army hung on, even though the fighting destroyed the city around them. Ironically, it was the destruction that kind of saved the Red Army, or those few who did survive. Bombs turned apartment buildings and factories into a vast landscape of hiding places for Soviet soldiers and snipers. This would require the Germans to fight close up, hand to hand, something Germans did not like to do. For one thing, having the enemy so close prevented the Luftwaffe or the artillery from bombing the Soviets for fear of killing their own men. Still, the Germans kept coming into the city, into the hell of broken buildings, piles of rubble, dead bodies, and burning machines. On 13 September, the Germans launched a major assault. General Paulus, commander of the 6th Army, had been pressured into claiming that his men could take the city and drive the Red Army out in 24 hours. Let's see how that goes. The fighting started, as German attacks in this time generally did, with an air bombardment. A German infantryman wrote, quote, A mass of Stukas came over us, and after their attack, one could not believe that even a mouse was left alive. End quote. The 71st Infantry Division broke through to the city center. The NKVD riflemen held them there until the 12th Guards Division crossed the Volga from the east at night and pushed the Germans back. More Red Army battalions kept coming across the river, pushing the Germans to the base of the Mameyev Korgan. That's when things really got desperate. Both sides knew that if the Germans held the summit, they could control all the river crossings, raining shells across the Volga at will. This led to an artillery duel for the heights that saw them change hands multiple times. One Red Army soldier wrote in his diary, quote, Stalingrad looks like a cemetery or a heap of garbage. The entire city and the area around it are as black as if painted with soot, end quote. The city was divided along a jagged, shifting front line. The civilian population was decimated, reduced to living under the rubble. Conditions were even worse for those trapped behind the German lines. German detachments hunted and murdered Jews, communist party members, and anyone they suspected of being a partisan. 
Thus began a months-long urban war of snipers and small arms, of two sides separated by as little as meters, a battle that the world watched play out, a battle that would mean life or death, not just for the people there, but also for the two tyrannies fighting this battle. But this is where we have to sign off for now. As you know, I'm trying to track the chronological development of the war on the Eastern Front, and we're getting ahead of the time. So please come back in two weeks, and I'm going to take a look at a long-term issue that had a decisive impact on the war, the Lend-Lease Program. So thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Barbarossa, the still the only podcast in English about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of this battle and the overall war, take a look at the maps that I put on the website, beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. Both of those addresses take you to the same place. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Click on the podcast button in the banner. I want to thank all of you who have supported the podcast through Patreon. Until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely, your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. And after that, whenever that happens, I'm going to put the money toward better audio equipment. If you like this episode, or even if you didn't, please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. That really helps spread the word to others interested in history. Would you like to add your thoughts, ideas, comments, or corrections? Please do. Reach out by email. Contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. With this episode, I'm going to add another incentive to that call. Everyone who sends an email to, those address, to that address, contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca, before the 1st of September, will get three ebooks: Army of War and Souls, Under the Nazi Heel, and Walking Out of War which together make up the Eastern Front Trilogy. Plus, all those who leave a rating or a review on a podcasting app will be entered into a draw for a paperback copy of the book. So, don't delay. Get your emails and ratings in by the end of August. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. Sound effects by Zapsplat and Vato Elements and Dead Sounds. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode... Keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.